Metric, the user experience podcast, is supported by folks like you on our Patreon. It's a way you can subscribe for a buck or two a month, and that goes a long way toward us being able to pay speakers and guest writers on the library user experience blog, which is, you know, just a super nice thing we'd be able to offer and we can't do it without you guys. There's a lot of bomb perks like early access to Metric and exclusive access to this whole other podcast that I do about web design news. But the one I like the most, I think, is for $2 a month, we enter you into our swag raffle, and you might win stuff. In March, it was a copy of the latest A Book Apart book on practical design discovery, and this month, in April, it's a copy of UX Libs, the book edited by this week's guest, Andy Priestner. I think you'd really like being a subscriber. Lots of cool stuff. If you're interested, patreon.com slash libux, L-I-B-U-X. Thanks. What's up, everybody? It is another episode of Metric, a user experience podcast. I am Michael Schofield, and in this episode, we've got Andy Priestner. He is a global trainer and consultant on user experience, leadership, social media, and Lego serious play. Um, he is uh, the originator and the chair of uh, UX Libs, which is approaching its third conference. It's an international community of librarians sharing UX, ethnography, and design thinking best practices. Um, the next conference is coming up real quick in June. Uh, and that's all I got for the intro. Hey, Andy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and figuring out the time zones to join me. Yeah, we got there in the end, didn't we? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that conference, there's only five spaces left. So by the time you listen to this, you probably have lost out, actually. <laughs> uh, so this is the third one, and I've kind of been... And you guys have the hashtag UXLib, so I follow that in its own column. And wow, man, like every everything I've ever read, either, you know, like semi-professional tone blog posts or just tweets is incredibly positive. Like everybody has a great time. Yeah, that's that's my experience of it. I don't want to get too big headed about it. It's certainly not just about me either. But um, we really wanted it to be something that was different, that was interactive, that was immersive. And that really brought people together to, to learn um, in a challenging way. I mean, that first year, we sent about five people home sick. Because <laughs> <laughs> we worked people perhaps a bit too hard. But, um, yeah, certainly it's uh, the blogs after every event are really um, they're really great to read because they, they show that people have really understood what we were trying to achieve and people have really learned, which, yeah, I, I feel quite proud about. Are you growing in size year after year? Like, do you have to get larger venues? So this year, um, we've gone to 170. So the first year, we're kind of 110, 120, and it was another 30 last year. So we, we are growing in size each year, but we're also aware that we don't want to get too big because a lot of people say they like the intimate feel of, you know, of the last two years. So it's not one of these giant conferences, you know, but it's it never will be, I hope. But um, it's great that there's that much interest. Uh, from my gleaning, I think it seems to be single track. Am I right? Um, for the most part, yes. Um, last year, we introduced parallel streams of people sharing what they've been doing with UX projects, um, which was was great. But it was um, it was a departure, and uh, we're doing that again this year. But for the most part, it's single track. 
including the um, immensely challenging team challenge, which um, we're having great fun putting together at the moment. What's the team challenge? Okay, so um, in the first year, we actually had people going out and doing ethnography um, UX stuff in libraries. Um, we were at the University of Cambridge the first year and meeting students and coming up with um, loads of data and then from that pitching ideas for products and services in a kind of like, I don't know whether you have the Dragon's Den over in the States, but um, no, it's, it's a show where you pitch products and ideas and then people with lots of money decide whether they're going to give them a start. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have we have similar ones. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that basically was the first year, and last year we did um, a track around. Um, we did a challenge rather around recruitment and the fact that it's really hard to recruit people to do this stuff, and another one around um, marketing up your um, your um, work to senior management. This year it's kind of still under wraps, <laughs> but <laughs> basically we're going to give them a mission pack of materials, and they're going to have to work. Um, jolly hard <laughs> to um, to come up with um, some solutions and some ideas to um, it's kind of a case based approach I think this year you're one of the first um, this, this feels this feels so weird to say to utter with my mouth <laughs> muscles I guess you're one of the first like I think British guests that I've ever had and so the more Britishisms that you interject here, you know, the, the better, better I think for the oh, yeah, entire okay. audience That's right? what I, kind of, I kind of paused and I thought no I'm going to say jolly hard <laughs> um so kind of back to the dragon's den thing so when when folks go out and they uh or at least during that conference and they were spinning up prototypes and ideas yeah what kind of was there actual plans to follow up with any of these or kind of what happened with that well what was funny was that one of the ones that got through to the final was about how um, students didn't know where spaces were, where they could work. And they had their regular haunts, but they didn't know that there was a vast um, amount of other spaces they could be going to in Cambridge. Um, so they came up with this kind of space-finding tool. Little did they know that parallel in development was this space-finder tool that I was kind of behind. And, of course, after the conference, there was a kind of, a bit of a, a bit of an awkward moment. It's like, yeah, we were kind of already <laughs> going to do that. And it's like, no, you weren't. We came up with that. We pitched it. But um, but that was great. It just proved that they'd done their work right. Just you know during that project, yeah. Well, yeah. You find when like a bunch of people are working on the same problem, often the best solutions are happening uh, simultaneously. They'll they'll and they'll be strikingly similar. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so that was that was great. I I think the the winning team there was um about um barista librarians. So librarians who could help you out, but also give you a really good coffee at the same time. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But um, yeah, as I say, this year it's under wraps because um, we're having great fun putting, putting this thing together. Myself, and I should give a shout out to um, Ned Potter, Matt Borg, and Donna Longclo, who are on the committee this year. And um, all give me a really hard time, actually. There's, we like to think we're developing a narrative. I think we all believe in story and the power of story, and that, I think, comes through in the way we put the event together, that it feels like we're on a journey together and that we've got an end goal. And always Matt does hilarious um, reviews of the entire conference and, and it's like <laughs> fake statistics and stuff as to how much cheese we ate and stuff like that. <laughs> I think you guys have the right, uh, the right audience, though, to make those real statistics. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, we do. <laughs> The, qu the qualitative analysis of 
Cheese. <laughs> yeah, I think one year we put up how many post-its had been used during the conference, and one person was like, really, they counted them all? I was like, no, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like a very hands-on conference, right? Like, everything that I see, there's there really are post-its everywhere. In fact, your enti- the entire, like, hashtag UX libs... Um, column in tweet deck it's just look look at my wall i was like well oh. i was like it's like well very multicolor here and well, over here here's some sketches <laughs> they're important what what do you hear most about people actually employing in their day jobs well um what i find really interesting is how people just talk very confidently about using the methods in such a way that i never kind of imagined that people would say oh, yeah, I'm using Love Letters and Breakup Letters, or I'm using Cognitive Maps, or I'm doing a Touchstone Tour. <laughs> and I know just a few years ago, they were kind of alien, but now people talk about them so casually. And that's a great surprise, but it's also wonderful, because it means it's it's getting home, you know, and people are realizing these methods are fantastic alternatives to dreaded surveys and focus groups. And, yeah, it's it's really great to hear. What um is your kind of, like, off-the-cuff feel of the state of user experience design in these in these institutions it, it's really interesting i was just i was um keynoting in huddersfield um, a few days ago and what i said was don't worry we're all kind of in the starting blocks it's how i feel no one nowhere seems to be ahead i mean that's in my experience of, of traveling around over the last two years but um my feeling is that everyone's kind of start to get past dipping their toes in the water and starting to actually have results and and products, but um, but we're still in the starting gates, and I think there's so much we can achieve. Um, I also see that that there are, are big problems out there to do with support institutionally, and I can see that um, there's issues there that need to be overcome. A lot of that has to probably do with sort of the traditionally bureaucratic nature of these, you know, academic institutions. Right. I mean, like there, there's just people in there who are in leadership roles who've been there for 30 years. And, you know, this isn't uh, ageism, but it's just, you know, they have a way that works for them that they've been using and taught and have taught themselves that sort of flattening the playing field and, and responding in a, a much more flexible way is nouveau it's not it probably doesn't feel right especially if you can't tie that to any measurable impact or you don't know how to tie that because i think it's very easy to say like hey boss let's do let's try such and such usability study and see if we can glean any kind of information about how people use spaces in our in our system at administrative levels you might need to actually tie that to foot traffic usage, um, kind of the, the numbers that matter with regard to incoming budget or something like that. And I think, um, I, mean, I was recently at Cambridge um, for the last two years doing this work, and I resigned in January, um, which I'm quite open about. And, and the reason I resigned was because of bureaucratic leadership and um, people wanting to be able to anticipate what research outcomes would be and expecting me to be, able to, to be able to detail in full what studies we do as part of a research project when you don't know when you start off. But also this idea of um, what impact is this going to have. I think we've gotten really good at um, coming up with actionable insights and, and products and services that really worked, and we were really just getting started. But it was just way too threatening for these people, way too threatening. 
just let's, represented too much change and uncertainty. Let's wind back a little bit. So this yeah. is the future lib. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you describe future lib? Sort of like what happened, and then and then yeah, if you're if you're open about it, you know this. Like I said, like I said before, this isn't journalism. I'm not trying to get a hot take. <laughs> um, but if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about things that led up to your resignation. This is the kind of area where you start to get into like a black box of information. People aren't very happy about talking about it, or they're not happy about talking about salary, um, which I, I think is a shame. But as we want to have design thinking be more impactful in business, there is a business aspect to that, and that includes the politics of it. So, yeah, if you don't mind taking us back to Future Lib and uh, just kind of going where you want to go with it. Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I always hated the name with a passion because for years, having gone to library conferences and it was all about the future of libraries, you know, <laughs> you know all this crap. And it's always been tedious and irritating to me. You're not a project, futurist? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that project was given to me as a title, you know, and I would never liked it. I wanted it to call Now Lib, you know, Now Lib. This is what we're doing in libraries <laughs> now, for God's sake. Let's find out what's going on now rather than deciding things that we can't possibly decide. Right. So, anyway, that's just by way of an introduction. But it was being done um, very much on a shoestring, and I was doing it as part of my role as um, head of the business school library in Cambridge. And I said, hey, I'm wanting to go freelance part-time. How about the other part of my time I actually run this program for you properly and actually um, really run with these projects and see what happens? And we were working with a, a design consultancy called Modern Human, who um, had done some work previously around design thinking at Cambridge University Library. And um, so they were like a partner for the program. And we achieved some great stuff, including that Space Finder tool, um, the prototyping library spaces project, Protolib, and loads of other you can find on Google. Um, and for each project, we'd get different teams of library staff from across the university to help us and to be kind of like a a team to to get the projects running and um, seeing what we can achieve and yeah, volunteer observation, all this sort of stuff. And we we got an awful lot of data together and an awful lot of work done in a very short space of time, but that was seen as quite threatening in some quarters, I think. I mean, if you think of Cambridge University, it's 800 years old. That means it's older than Aztec civilization. Just think about that for a moment. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> the idea that you can just go in and say, yeah, you got it wrong. We're, we're changing things now, you know. It's, you're not right. That's really hard for some people who put great store by that heritage and that history. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when what happened was basically the university librarian and her deputy, who I reported to, both left within a few weeks of each other to become deans of libraries, actually, in the States. Um, was that was I'm sorry, was, was that related at all to this project, or it was just no, a happy no, coincidence? No, they were, no, they were the supporters. They were fantastic, and they moved on. And then ah. I was kind of left behind with people who didn't want this project at all. Or much less than that. It wasn't necessarily that they didn't want it. They just didn't understand it. They didn't want to know what to do with it. They certainly didn't want to talk to me about it. Interesting. However much, however much I tried to talk about it, you know. Um, and I think it's because it represented change. It represented fear. Um, well, it made them fearful, rather. It represented uncertainty. So, um, yeah, so it was very quickly apparent to me that the support wasn't there. 
and we were in a heap of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I haven't really, you know, I, I know that you, I've always known somewhere. I don't know what I'm saying, but this is all going to get cut out. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we all, I think we can all agree that you need administrative support. You need, you need support of the stakeholders, but it never really occurred to me that you probably need or could use institutional support because these administrators will move on <laughs> that if this isn't part of the organizational mission, it's not, you know, written somewhere deep into the, into the culture or the policy that, it, yeah, I, man, I, I really empathize because all the work that you all did could just be brushed off the desk. So what a shame. The, um... I think it was mainly it wasn't it was wasn't a match for the culture of the university library. Um, and there were some people there who were fantastic, but um, a lot of people who were just very anti what it represented. Um, and even though we'd managed to work it into the the mission, the strategic plan of the university library, there, it was in there twice, which I was thought, well, well that's good, we're safe. <laughs> no, not so. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's it's sad because we were doing a lot and we were the f one of the only systematic um, programs that I could see out there where we were systematically doing this stuff. We had simultaneous projects on the go and we were finding out so much stuff. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great shame. But um, at the same time, you know, life goes on and, yeah, you can't keep on banging your head against a brick wall. What is the state of the project now? So it's still formally... Um, ongoing but it's kind of in stasis as far as i can understand um because it's it's only got my colleague david working on it he's a great guy and he will try and keep it going as long as he can but um yeah i'd got to the point where it was like no this is this is me walking out <laughs> and it was a walk out so <laughs> yeah. that takes a, a ton of courage <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I always joked, um, we always joked that I would walk out, that I would um, kind of um, lose it one day, which kind, <laughs> of which kind of suggests that I'm this kind of emotional bag of like, trouble, but it really isn't so much that, just that the culture was so different. So um, you are uh, effectively freelancing now, or yeah. it's probably not the right word, but... No, it is, it is, I'm 100% freelancing now. In, in, uh, in, our, in our dev circles down here, I, I live in a kind of Miami, Fort Lauderdale uh, area of the East Coast of the States. And yeah, uh, it's it happens to be a big topic of conversation. You have the folks who just leave their jobs to start contracting for themselves, yeah. which has so much baggage, legal and financial, and, and it's terrifying but liberating. And uh, and so, and so yeah, um, when you and I were sort of tweeting back and forth and you were like, oh, I'm not really part of the Future Lib project right now, <laughs> I was I was impressed. I was like, oh, gosh, uh, <laughs> I, I feel it deep down because I've, I've struggled with this. I'm like, oh, do I have what it takes to freelance? I, I do a lot of freelance like on the side. I contract a lot because I'm a workaholic and I like what I do, but I don't know if I could – if I could leave like the support of the much larger institution or the organization. Yeah. And that's so sounds... what are you doing now? Like, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, really well. Um, <laughs> I mean, very lucky I feel. Um, but then I kind of built that up. You make your own luck, don't you, I guess. And, um, I've been doing this work on the side and that was the agreement from the start with the university library that I'd carry on 
where I'd started, I'd just started freelancing on the side and they, um, they were never very comfortable with it, but I was so out there that this is what I'm doing, that that was the deal from the very beginning. So that was, that was important. Otherwise that could be difficult. But, um, so I built up clients whilst I was there and, and, and so it was just continuing that and growing that. And, um, yeah, right now, touch wood, it, it's going really well. Um, and I've got more time to think. That's the best thing. I can actually prepare better material. I actually <laughs> can read stuff. Imagine that. So, yeah. It's not having future at the back of my mind gnawing away. is is quite So what's happened thing. to the insight from – oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was done, yeah. Um, the insights from the projects. I mean, well, most of it had been written up. The one thing that I'm really sad about is the project we were just finishing up. In fact, I walked after the final presentation on this one on this one project, um, which is called the Tracker Project, which you probably saw. We were eye tracking people with glasses. Right, right, um, yeah, I, yeah. I retweeted that. I looked really, uh, yeah. looked really swanky. It was fantastic seeing how people actually found items in libraries, or more often than not, didn't find them. <laughs> 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 Only continued because we were there. Um, people really being. Um, honest about well not honest it was more like they got it wrong in the sense that they thought that something was wrong with them they never criticized the libraries or the librarians they said you know it's something about me i don't have the library gene or i don't know what i'm what i'm doing here and that's kind of my fault which it isn't no it's depressing but and people saying you know i'm no good at libraries to which my instinctive response to that is you shouldn't have to be good at libraries you know, you should. It should just be instinctive and natural and intuitive and all that. What? But, yeah. What is the TLDR? How, if you could summarize why people can't find things. Um. Confusing layout and um, very poor signage. Um, and just not following design principles with signage. This seems so <laughs> obvious. <laughs> yes, know? I know. That's the thing with all, a load of this stuff. I kind of think. You know, there's that cartoon about someone holding up a seatbelt and and saying this, and someone's in their seat saying a seatbelt on an airplane, and someone's saying, "So that's how you fasten a seatbelt." You know, <laughs> it's, a lot of these insights are really obvious, I think, but they still need to be set out because people aren't getting it. Have you seen that Amazon has opened a, a physical bookstore? No. I'm not going to do it the justice it deserves, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. There was a recent article in. TechCrunch probably about the decision to lay out the Amazon physical bookstore where all of the books are facing out. They're, they're kind of like stacked like from back to front and not like side to side if there's multiple copies. Um, and of course it's only, this has nothing to do with like the actual layout, but uh, they're only stocking books that, are seem to be proven by data to like be in demand at that time. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, I guess that's sort of like the interesting uh the interesting thing, but um I was taken by their choice to just make that simple decision which was the result of a lot of testing and and this is what the article was about. They they tried to stack it um kind of library style. They tried to do sort of a hybrid which you might see in a bookstore where, you know, they're they're 
spine facing out, and then every so often you have a featured one to sort of capture the eye. And they've and they collected, of course, like a ton of data because it's Amazon, is because it's what they do. And what they found was that for them, the best way to sell books, to get these books off the shelves were to face them all out, which meant that there was far less space for a larger collection, right? Because, you know, the the books are, take up more space this way and there's, and there's little <laughs> shelf, uh, little uh, shelving available for anything else. So it forced them to be particularly specific about their collection. And I just wonder, I don't know if, if that, if you have any thoughts about that, uh, again, I'm, I'm not doing the article justice, but it was, uh, it was interesting. This seems to be a topic that that's come up in the past. I don't hear about it so much more, yeah. but, oh, should the library be organized by Dewey or Library of Congress yeah. style? Should it be organized more like a, like a bookstore? And, you know, it has yeah. pros and cons on either side. Well, it was interesting because certainly a lot of the students in the sciences who we, um, we followed around used the libraries they were in like bookstores. So there was more of an argument to do that. So for one, we did a design intervention in the chemistry library where we, we tried to lay it out more like a bookstore. And we, we slightly increased um, their efficacy at, at locating books. But, um, but we realized we actually need to do a massive redesign of the whole library for it to really work. Uh, yeah. So I'm kind of all for that honesty of um, the paring down to what's really needed. I think that sounds like a great model. And I don't think there's enough bravery around that in libraries. That's my view. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> on that note, I think we've uh, monopolized enough of your time. Um, okay. I would love for you to come back. I'm I'm really interested in picking your brain more about uh, maybe like after UX Labs three. I'd love to kind of just hear your take. Maybe maybe we could have like a little panel of the folks who were involved on there. Um, cool, yeah. Because I want to live vicariously. <laughs> like, <laughs> this seems like a great event. I want to hear it. Um, and but I was wondering if like at this in the last like couple minutes of your time, yeah, is there anything that you would communicate that's kind of like that's deep down that you feel people should know and take away? Okay, <laughs> so um, I think and go <laughs> the big yeah <laughs> yeah thanks for that. Um, I think the big problem is people just don't get design thinking. They don't get minimum viable products. They don't get the the iterative prototyping model, and it's just how do we communicate that better? How do we make that more attractive? Um, and how do we prove it more quickly? Because, honestly, the, the barriers I see to that, I mean, if I've got a day with people working on that stuff, they get it. But that's a lot, that's quite an investment from these guys, and it's just like, how do we how do we make that message more um, more compelling to a bureaucratic audience, particularly? And what's your answer? <laughs> um, simplicity, um, pictures. <laughs> Let's do a storybook. No, I, I really don't know. There needs to be something that, that that makes it clear what the benefits are. Because to me, these benefits are so obvious that this passion has kind of turned my life around. But for others, it's it's so hard to break down that wall. And I just don't know whether we can perhaps work together more to break down that wall. But I don't know quite how we do that. But um, that's that's got to be on the agenda because otherwise it's just we're just 
I don't know, pissing in the dark for one of the better phrase. <laughs> That's the title of this episode. <laughs> Great. Andy Priestner, comma, pissing in the dark. Pissing in the dark with Andy Priestner. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> for folks who want to actually get in touch with you to maybe work with you and bring you in, how do they get a hold of you? Well, my website is andypriestnertraining.com. My Twitter is andytraining. And I'm also on LinkedIn, which I use a lot. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day. Um, I really appreciate it, and I hope that we can talk again soon. Yeah, so do I. Cheers, Michael. It's been fun. 